Hello and welcome to the second episode of Pontificating Across the Pond. In this episode, Soma and I talk about US oil's descent into anarchy and some much needed common sense. We then move on to the latest leg in the special forces debate in India and the annual choreographed dance of death between India and Pakistan. So the genesis for this episode uh they pretty much started uh, last week on Tuesday when you sent me a message in the middle of my night here in India uh with a screenshot of uh, the crude price and uh, on the WTI and you wrote that uh this is the WTI uh US oil and that means they'll pay you $34 to take delivery of oil once in a lifetime day and i remember waking up to that and obviously the only news that you consume now is about uh, covid-19 and to read that obviously first i was completely confused because um while you had sent me a very uh, legitimate looking screenshot uh, i was wondering if uh, you had a bit to drink and obviously none of this made any sense to me uh, and then i opened uh, the news and myself read uh, about this and obviously immediately after that you heard everyone talking about it it was on uh, twitter it was on instagram stories for people and uh, everyone interpreting it their own way and talking about how oil is going to become cheaper and uh, it, it's a good time to uh, go and fill up your tanks now in the next uh, few days all these theories and i think people were just excited to have some news other than uh, covid-19 uh, but as it has settled a bit i think uh, it became important for people to really understand what this means uh, in in the moment and uh, and in the long run too uh, how much of it really has anything to do with covid-19 uh, besides an absolute uh, you know death in demand uh, but where did all of this really begin and you're pretty much on the front lines of this entire uh, conversation uh, so i'd like to kind of hear from you that how did we get to this uh, amazing screenshot that you sent me a week back <laughs> so the genesis of this really in its modern uh, incarnation goes back to 2014 uh, november 2014 to be specific when uh, saudi arabia decided that they would fight for market share and not let uh, the likes of the us russia brazil and norway take away more and more market share because saudi arabia was cutting their production to ensure that prices remained high and their fervent hope then was that once they flood the market with oil uh, the us shale producers which are high cost producers would be driven out of business uh, so they tried that strategy all of 2015 but the shale production did not really budge shale proved to be a bit like a, a seven-headed hydra where it kept rearing its ugly head again and again because they just kept getting more and more efficient an oil well which took them 10 days to drill now took them 2 days to drill so us oil turned into a tap which could be turned on and off in response to prices and in 2016 saudi arabia pretty much abandoned uh, their play to destroy us shale and they said that you know what we will now have to curtail our production and they got russia on board which was which is the uh, second largest producer of oil 
and uh, they continued with their production cuts for a few years till we uh, stepped into 2020 where prices had recovered to a healthy level but then covid-19 struck and there was demand destruction on a scale that we've never seen before and a uh, rough rule of thumb the world consumes about 100 million barrels of oil a day and covid-19 put that number down to 65 to 70 million barrels a day so it was a demand destruction of 30% and saudi arabia and russia after a few of their uh, uh, dilly dallying and uh, you know trying to the strongman leader trying to one up uh, one another they eventually came to a donald trump driven consensus that they needed to cut their production and they announced production cuts uh, around the middle of uh, towards the end of march but what happened with wti uh, ties into that story because if there was no uh, market share war which was initiated in 2014 us shale would have be already been uh, much stronger or it could have been much weaker if they'd already taken voluntary production cuts but where it ties in very neatly with the demand destruction is that had this level of demand destruction not been seen by the world we obviously would never have seen oil changing hands at uh, 37 barrels uh, 37 dollars a barrel negative uh, which is like you put it an oil producer would pay you 37 dollars to take a barrel of oil off the producer's hands right and uh, what's what's kind of interesting what you just said is uh, you know a, a... a donald trump solution to the stalemate uh, how did that kind of uh, come about i mean uh, there were conversations happening right in the beginning of march just before the lockdowns across the world started um how is uh, how have the us become a mediator in in this entire uh, discussion so back in the uh, beginning of may when uh, crown prince uh, mbs mohammed bin salman and uh, putin had that spat uh Donald Trump was uh, obviously uh tweeting about it in a very cheerful manner because US a lot like India is a very heavy uh oil consumer uh India it's slightly different because we import most of our oil but both are very heavy uh, oil consumers so whenever a country is uh, that heavily dependent on consuming oil the lower uh, lower oil prices is always better for you and Donald Trump was very cheerful that because uh, Saudi and Russia would now flood the markets with oil the US would benefit because the oil price would be much lower what he did not count on was that in times like these in a quarantine and a lockdown when cars are stuck in their uh, garage when aircrafts are stuck in the hangars and global trade has almost come to a standstill that oil is not really being used so a low oil price is not really a stimulus anymore and what he of course he realized it but the scale of us production was something which you know takes most people even experts by surprise because they are now the world's largest oil producer 30 years ago it would have been uh, unthinkable when uh, the arabs pretty much had the us uh, by their uh, balls but it is it has now come to pass the us is uh, you know they swap positions with uh, saudi arabia as the largest oil producer and uh, in a time like this with the scale of demand destruction 
Donald Trump realized that he needed to salvage the oil price if he was to salvage U.S. own oil economy, and uh, that also ties into where his uh, where the Trump heartland is in a way. The people who vote for them, uh, you know, West Texas, North Dakota, these are all places where a large amount of U.S. oil supply comes in from, and hence he decided to save. that sector prioritize saving that sector hence he reached out to uh, saudi arabia and russia to help broker this deal and just a quick note on uh, what that negative oil print for uh, may meant uh, we obviously saw people getting very excited about uh, low oil prices and negative oil prices but what that number meant was that only for the month of may would and only for that brief moment where a few trades were executed at that price meant that producers were paying you to take oil off uh, the producers hands it doesn't mean that you can uh, get negative negatively priced oil in perpetuity it doesn't mean you could get it at any point in time say for the month of june or july it only exactly means that one day before a contract for delivering WTI which is West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil in Cushing Oklahoma traded at minus 40 for just those few minutes and just those few trades it doesn't mean you can get negative oil for the month of June or July or October or December it is just for the month of May because the US is running out of storage and because of a few financial factors where a lot of retail investors ended up getting stuck in this contract did the oil price turn that negative because everyone wanted to sell it and obviously no one wants to physically take delivery of uh, the black smelly and inflammable stuff because mom and pop investors are not going to drive down to cushing to come back home with their barrels of oil and then store it in their garage so it's a very peculiar set of factors and circumstances which turned just that contract month negative for a few brief minutes right and uh... now that we have effectively quashed everyone's plans of uh, loading up on a lot of uh, oil <laughs> uh what 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 does that mean outside of the us i mean the wti really uh, talks about oil prices uh, in the us for contracts but what happens to the rest of the world and is this something that can happen uh, elsewhere so two key uh, distinctions to make here are that wti oil one needs it is physically settled which means whoever is left holding the contract when the contract expires has to take physical delivery of oil it's not the case with the much more widely traded brent which is based on the north atlantic grade of crude and is priced off a terminal of northern scotland that is not settled physically and it's settled in cash so that's one distinction the second distinction is that wti crude is very peculiar because it focuses on the inland dynamics of us oil now cushing oklahoma is landlocked and even though it's called the pipeline capital of the world you actually need to pipe you need to ship or send the crude oil through pipelines to the gulf of mexico where tankers await to be loaded with crude oil or other Uh, factories and other users take delivery of oil by injecting into their own storage it is inland 
whereas Brent is seaborne and hence theoretically has many more places where it can be shipped with far lesser friction. Uh, from the North Atlantic, you could come down to US, you could go uh, into Northwestern Europe, you could also ship that oil down south towards Africa, Latin America, Asia, whereas inland US oil, landlocked oil does not have all those options open. So the first factor is really the important one to focus on, that WTI is settled physically, whereas Brent is settled in catch. So uh, there's a far lesser chance that uh, Brent would turn negative because it's being settled in catch. The theoretical price uh, needn't be uh, breached. But more to your point, if the world runs out of storage, as we are close to running out of storage, and there is nowhere for the world to start using oil, uh, then in a way, even a seaborne uh, grade of crude like Brent could become stranded. It could become landlocked because no one wants to take delivery. And super tankers are already being chartered at rates which are 10 times the rates which were being offered at the beginning of the year. So it's increasingly turning more and more expensive for users to actually ship the soil because charter rates are so high. And in part also because of a situation in the uh, commodities market, which is called contango, which means near dated, uh, the near dated commodity is cheaper than the commodity dated, say, for October or December. Simply what this means is that crude oil for the month of June is available for $20, whereas crude oil for the month of October is available for $35. So everyone would be incentivized then to store up the oil because no one is using it right now, and then to release it when the prices are $35 a barrel. Uh, so that is a situation called contango, which we're currently in. Many would say we're in super contango because the difference between the two prices is so high that it has incentivized producers to just store their production in the high seas. And that has caused far fewer tankers to be available to the rest of the world. So very limited chances that we would see that in uh, a much more widely traded uh, commodity like Brent. But we've already seen negative prices elsewhere too. In fact, the uh, Mexican uh, grade, the Maya grade, was also trading negative in May, uh, in uh, April, sorry, because it was pegged to the WTI. Uh, the Russian grade, the Urals, were trading close to negative because they applied that discount to Brent. So the many of these uh, internal dynamics, many far lesser traded uh, grades of crude oil, which the world doesn't really hear about. You don't really hear about Arab Light or Basra Heavy or Maya or, uh, you know, West Canadian Select. A lot of these actually trade quite close to negative. It's just that Brent has remained solidly uh, in the positive, but uh, there are already many grades which are already seeing negative prices, and that could continue for some time because there is nowhere to store this oil, and no one wants nowhere to use the oil, and hence no one wants the damn oil. So prices, uh, in fact, should go negative if it is to incentivize someone, anyone, to just pick up this oil. Right, and would that have any kind of impact on? India's uh, import bill in uh, specific? I mean, for everyone hoping for some kind of reprieve in uh, the way the uh, economy is performing now, uh, a lot of people feel that this would be uh, a great uh, advantage to have when things start opening up. 
but the mechanics don't work from, that way right uh but from a fiscal standpoint these people are correct it mm-hmm. could benefit india especially at a time when the government now has to support millions and millions of businesses and uh, informal workers uh they need to support them so they need the fiscal room and low oil prices give them that fiscal room uh although india cannot actually physically send a tanker uh to the gulf of mexico to pick up this uh, oil which was priced at minus 37 you can't do that because the oil uh, obviously has to wait in cushing oklahoma till the pipelines become free then there's a two month delay to actually pick up the oil in the gulf of mexico and then a three week journey that the tanker needs to make to come to india by which time the prices would uh, already have gone back up to uh, 30 or 35 dollars a barrel uh but lower oil prices help the government they necessarily do not help the consumer you and i because uh, oil is taxed so heavily in india and it's honestly taxed in most countries around the world apart from a few arab countries it's taxed very heavily because it fills up government coffers and in a way it's an inelastic commodity you're impervious to price if you need to get from point a to point b you would just fill up your tank with whatever price the uh, petrol is available so it would help the indian government in that we could opportunistically get a few cargoes of crude oil delivered but most of these uh, most of the pricing works on either a 3 month lag or a 2 month lag so it doesn't immediately transfer onto say india's bottom line where uh, we start seeing a real saving and for the consumer at the pump the price might not really change because this government would want to mop up extra revenues as in when the economy does open up because they already they need some fiscal uh, bandwidth to uh, fund all their uh, backstop programs for government for small businesses and uh, for laborers right but is there a chance for them to kind of fortify you know strategic reserves uh, at a time like this uh that is what they should be doing right now is actually filling up on uh, our country's strategic petroleum reserves i'm not very knowledgeable as to what india's capacity is or how much it's breached uh, as in the level that it's already reached but one very interesting data point is that the three large oil refiners in india the bpcl hpcl and ioc their storage is already at 95% so these refiners can really no longer take advantage of low oil prices because there is no uptake of uh, refined product at the other end because like we discussed uh, cars are stuck in their garages and airplanes are stuck in their hangars so there's no demand so and if capacity is already 95% full uh, you're really not going to uh, get the full benefit of low oil prices and i wouldn't be surprised if india's uh, strategic reserves are also at a similar level china mm-hmm. announced a program by filling up their strategic reserves donald trump said that they do that in the us but if there's nowhere to start using those uh, the barrels of crude being put into these uh, strategic reserves then you just lose that benefit too and it's a one off uh, we should be very clear that it's a one off you could only bring down the average price over the course of the year uh by consistently buying low price crude a one off is not really going to help you it's just like if you fill up your petrol tank uh, once with uh, 
50 rupee a liter petrol and the rest of the year you actually fill up with 80 rupees a liter petrol your average cost is only really going to come down to say 78 or 77 which is not much of a saving right right so is there i mean i know you've pretty much ruled it out but is there any outlandish way for any country to kind of take advantage of what's happening uh, in cushing right now i mean is there someone who can send a super tanker out there to kind of uh, take advantage of the situation uh this goes back to the point on contango where right. a lot of these super tankers a lot of even the mini tankers and much smaller tankers have already been chartered out for 6 months in advance and at rates which are like which i wateringly dear which are 10 times the price which was being quoted at the beginning of the year and there's a flotilla of super tankers now parked off the coast uh, sorry moored of the coast of uh, california where even now the us coast guard is keeping an eye on uh, all the tankers which are moored there because they're all moored there just to fill up on uh, cheap oil and then make their onward journeys but specifically for cushing oklahoma you can't really send super tankers because there're none left in the world right now you can't you could obviously send in a fleet of a cavalcade of uh, truckers who could fill up on crude and come but because it's unprocessed it's unrefined it's really heavy so it's right. very uneconomical you're not really going to be doing it i think uh, what everyone wants to do is accept the fact that this happened and no one ever thought that this could happen producers traders refiners investors nobody thought it could happen it has happened we want to put that behind us and we want to start looking forward because now the action is in the month of june the june contract will be up for expiry uh, in about 25 days and if that also settles quite close to zero then we know that we have a real problem and i think donald trump then would be getting very antsy to open up the economy right so and i think on on a final note there uh, you do see a good chance of that uh, happening with the wti for sure because america doesn't look uh, like it's ready any time to come out of the lockdown unless uh, trump and some of the governors force their way through it which seems to be what uh, they are kind of gunning for um, but uh, what what really would be a real world scenario of uh, another month close to zero or negative uh, in in the pricing of the contract i think it might be single digit because this is when uh, the us driving season starts and there's a lot of demand uptake which is which we're obviously not going to see this year i do not think the prices would turn negative again because uh, whoever is <laughs> stuck in these contracts would know that they would have to roll their contracts before expiry and that is something a lot of uh, whoever was holding the contracts didn't really do uh, and i it might be really low it might be single digit but i don't think we would see negative oil prices again and even if we do it would be one of those things where you say oh you know what it's it's just something you see and comment on it might not have real world implications uh, the way that the may contract had because that uh, forced investors and forced everyone around the world to question a lot of their assumptions and it busted a lot many more myths uh, than uh, what the reality suggests so we might not really see it for the month of june but it has told the world that we are running out of storage uh, with then we've seen unprecedented levels of demand destruction 
and something really has to give here and for the time being what's given is actually production declines which is what uh, saudi arabia and russia and now the us have signed up for that they will curtail their production even if it's just by 10% uh, i think uh, a negative price induced uh, production cut would be far more meaningful than uh, a multilateral agreement which is a lot of just uh, accounting fudging right so i think uh, for anyone uh, listening to us and wants to understand what we just went through a little better or wants to spend a little bit more time on it i think in the show notes we'll also uh, link your article uh, there that you uh, had written about this entire uh, crisis and uh, i think from there we'll move to the next segment so earlier in the month there uh, the other news that uh, broke out in india uh, was uh, on the 6th of april in the uh, kupwara sector of kashmir uh, there was an extremely uh, unfortunate incident where uh, the indian army lost five of its uh, uh, para commandos and uh, this was an operation which uh, lasted a couple of days apparently where uh, the paras were called in to take out uh, five suspected intruders and uh, uh, there there've been a lot of uh, uh, conversation around how the mission kind of played out uh, there was specific intel on these uh, five intruders um, and the five uh, para special force uh, soldiers unfortunately uh, you know literally landed on top of them uh, due to this uh, snow bridge that kind of collapsed and uh, what ensued was pretty much a uh, hand to hand battle where three of the uh, special forces uh, soldiers lost their lives uh, uh, on the scene of the battle itself and two were evacuated to a hospital where they succumbed to their injuries uh, and all five intruders were killed in the process um i think uh, obviously with uh, a lot of the conversation in the news uh, across newspapers and everywhere focused on covid-19 uh, this was a piece of news that uh, at least in the public eye kind of was completely lost uh, and i'm sure political players and uh, the military have been keeping a keen eye on this um, and uh, i think uh, especially what changed after the surgical strikes across public opinion in this country is that somehow people just feel that they understand the working of special forces and when they are deployed and uh, what is their uh, true purpose and there's been some conversation around why wasn't a more blunt force uh, kind of sent after these uh, terrorists and combing operations done by the infantry uh, and uh, commandos as part of battalions out there why was special forces sent for such a mission and for such a strategic part of the uh, indian army to lose uh, five soldiers uh, isn't that something that uh, might lend itself to poor decision making uh by commanders on the front out there um, i think it it all kind of comes back to a lot of our conversations including a podcast we recorded earlier on uh, the, the special forces and a central command and control center for them um first off i mean what 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 are your thoughts around uh, some of these uh, conversations and thoughts of people uh, about the paras being uh, strategic and was this the correct use of them in such an operation uh, in the region i think the first uh, 
thing to make clear the point of clarification is that if a team of soldiers stepped on a cornice it doesn't matter what the color of their beret or their lanyards they would unfortunately have met with a similar fate so one it was just wretched luck uh, that where they were standing was a cornice and they eventually ended up falling into the enemy's lap it could have happened to any column or any team or any squad of soldiers that must be made abundantly clear but the broader point is quite well taken that this should lead to a debate as to whether india's special forces are really strategic and we've spoken about this before uh, when the uh, division the special forces operations division was set up and i've written about it about 4 years ago saying there should be a special forces operations command uh and one thing in fact many veterans have also called out the special forces for not really being strategic but the fact that they continue to be employed tactically so india's special forces end up being so only in name and not orientation because the country's higher defense organization it lacks military professionals their ability to employ uh, special forces on political military missions at strategic levels is obviously lacking but what one must make very clear is also that special forces will continue to be deployed in the kashmir valley in operations across the lc as and when a local commander sees fit so there've been times when the northern army commander or the 15 core commander or the 16 core commander will always see fit to deploy special forces if they want an operation to a end swiftly if they think the perceived threat to uh, life of regular infantry soldiers of even uh, their ghatak platoons is quite elevated the trade off that they would as crude as it sounds that they will have to make is that the life of 10 infantry soldiers might be preserved if we press in uh, special forces right now into this situation if we airdrop them into this situation we might lose one or two uh, special forces soldiers but uh, we will end up saving 10 or 12 uh, regular infantry soldiers and that's unfortunately a decision which local commanders have to keep making day in and day out which then leads us to the point that are india special forces really strategic and i have always said that they are not and they are not strategic by its by their very definition you cannot have eight or nine battalions of special forces and then call them strategic the very fact that you have nine of them means that they will be deployed on missions which are tactical more often than not if say you were to earmark a single battalion or two battalions as uh, your as the tip of the spear as strategic forces then they need to be earmarked and they have to step aside from uh, draining counter insurgency and counter terror operations there is no other way in fact there is such a force called the special group which is overwhelmingly made up of uh, the army special forces soldiers and it's just about two battalions strong and it operates on strategic missions on the say so of uh, the home ministry and it's under direct operational command of the raw and ib r and aw and ib so 
we do our special forces unfortunately in their orientation are not strategic so the whole debate about whether special forces should have been pressed in should not have been pressed in is just retrospective it was the local commander on the ground who decided that given that we've spent 3 days chasing these uh, terrorists we've cornered them into a very small area which we can control and dominate which the perimeter security has been set up by the regular infantry battalion there it is the right time to press in uh, these you know quote unquote sharp shooters so they can take them out with minimal loss of uh, life and the entire grid can then be uh, done away with and then these uh, soldiers of you know the regular infantry battalion just go on to their uh, regular grid duty and that was a very sensible uh, assumption to make before these soldiers were actually sent into battle and many a core commander and northern army commander and eastern army commander would tell you that these are the trade offs that you have to make you will always press in special forces battalions when you see fit to press in sf battalions there is no getting around that till the time you earmark a battalion or two to be permanently deputed to the newly created sfod there will always be situations where we will unfortunately lose special forces soldiers in operations which the general population thinks uh, were unnecessary because but ultimately all that changes is the color of the lanyard nothing else changes because you will unfortunately have loss of life and you cannot always pick and choose a soldier with which beret unfortunately goes down in battle you just can't do that till such a time that you actually earmark a battalion or two to permanently work with the sfod right so there i mean if we go beyond uh, the 6th of april and this operation in uh, specific i think uh, another trend uh, that i is is useful to kind of uh, uh, touch upon is uh, um, also the state of uh, preparedness uh, for such operations right and i just uh, like to quickly kind of go through that before uh, we discuss other things around the region itself which has been which has been heating up in the last couple of weeks uh, but we've had these discussions about how equipped uh, we are i mean we all know that the special forces uh, have some of the best um, are some of the best equipped uh, teams on the ground out there in terms of weaponry surveillance everything but uh, are we weaponizing our um, men in the right way for the kind of operations that are uh, to be carried out uh, considering this is the region where a lot of the action is uh, intrusion is has always uh, continued in the last couple of years it's only totally gone up much as much as the government would want to uh, not want to accept some of those numbers um I, are the teams on the ground really equipped right for this there's so much of spending on uh, tanks that will continue to happen as you were, we were talking the other day but uh, are we equipped right unfortunately not i think a lot of advancements have been made in how the physical lc fence is manned and maintained and obviously it's not possible to have a soldier standing guard every meter that's just not going to happen so it is a trade off it is a risk reward trade off in what the local commander sees or what the overarching directive from uh, the command headquarters and army headquarters is but 
even back in the time in early 2017 when i wrote the article which became very very popular on the special forces identity crisis just before i penned that article in fact the defense acquisition council uh, they cleared 300 crore watches for the para sf and that in itself is woefully inadequate considering the size of their task and the number of battalions which we just discussed are actually special forces battalions and i always say it's much safer to have a sharper tip of the spear than an unwieldy and blunt spear so if you keep compromising the tip of your spear to ensure that the entire spear is uh, strong you will end up with an unwieldy and a blunt spear which goes to the point that we still investing so much in our main battle tanks we're still investing so much in acquiring weaponry which in the current day and age in kashmir has no use and i do not want to take names or the which battalions have which weapons because a i obviously don't know it but the trickle of information that i do have on that which uh, people have told me is that a couple of newly raised battalions are woefully they they've gone into missions with antiquated and ineffective weapons and in fact uh, to be specific a rifle in which uh, even the regular army's trust has uh, completely eviscerated let alone the para sf so we've see these glaring shortcomings in equipment in pretty much all the para sf battalions and that has to be arrested and beyond that even the regular infantry you need to man them and staff them with much better weaponry with much more modern weaponry you cannot have situations where your special forces or even your ghatak platoons of regular infantry battalions go into missions with antiquated weapons uh you know you're letting your soldiers down if you send them into battle with those weapons and 300 crore might sound like a lot but it was clear 3 years ago and it's still woefully inadequate considering we have about more than half a dozen we have eight or nine para sf battalions so we're not uh, we're not manned right and we're not staffed right our weapons are not staffed right for the threat matrix that we currently face not at all and to kind of move from you know using your very own words uh, from the tip of the spear to the rest of the spear um the uh, indian army in the days uh, following up this uh, uh, unfortunate uh, operation uh, did see a lot of uh, artillery fire from across the border uh, when you read uh, the dawn which is pakistan's uh, most popular english daily you hear about india sees fire by uh violations uh, which started uh, from anywhere between the 7th to the 11th there was news every day pouring in uh, and obviously on the indian side you hear the same language it's it's literally choreographed in a way you feel uh, of how these uh, ceasefire violations uh, seem to start peaking at this time every year and the language on both sides of the border is pretty much the same uh this time it was uh, obviously a little uh, uh, different from uh, uh, previous infractions where uh, the artillery fire from the pakistani side landed far deeper than usual uh, just uh, some kilometers away from major cities in uh, and towns in kashmir um, so that did create a lot of uh, i'm i'm sure some of the tracks must have had some really uh, uh, serious conversations uh, right from the military to the bureaucrats but uh, i think the the larger trend is of how this is the time of the year every year where 
these violations uh, increase i mean we both countries have signed a ceasefire violation uh, i think back in 2003 if i'm not right i'm not wrong and uh, we've just continuously on both sides uh, continue to uh, violate that uh, agreement um, this year itself i mean uh, in 2019 that is uh, india has claimed to see the most number of violations from uh, pakistan uh, upwards of 3000 Uh, even though the modi government um, has been this strongman government and uh, they have managed to push back on every attempt uh, by pakistan uh, to question the sovereignty uh, of india and the region but i just want to understand that this trend is this something that is just choreographed by both sides uh, it's important uh, to just be able to show force um, and historically obviously uh it was used by the pakistan army to ensure movement of uh, men across the border uh but in this post article 370 world uh what does this mean now like and and, and w- how are the local kashmiris going to see uh, some of this behavior or is it something that they have become numb to but doesn't there have to be like a strategic turn or a pivot in terms of how we look at the uh, line of control and how both sides address it now in this post 370 world in a way yes that does have to be and it's that period of year which you know, I, i just came up with this it's the annual dance of death on melting ice and melting mm-hmm. snow right. it happens every year in many parts of south kashmir in fact the snowfall is so heavy that militants could just walk over the physical line of control because the fence is buried the fence is buried under feet and like many feet of snow and it is unfortunately something both countries more unfortunate for us obviously uh, we do have to face up to this every year because summer is the time when infiltration has to be affected there is no other time of year where you can be this effective infiltrating your men across the lc uh, so we will see this every year with or without 370 the added impetus this year is that this is the first sort of uh, annual dance season uh, annual dance of death after 370 so of course there will be added force from the pakistani side and of course india will respond with added force and to the point of uh, ceasefire violations it just depends on how you count it uh, you know paradoxically uh, for every violation either side makes there will be a response uh, you know the artillery gunners or the regular infantry they're not going to sit across the border and keep mum they will give a response so each side ends up counting it as one ceasefire violation so if nothing else there will be an end to end relationship between uh, the ceasefire violations that each country records and there is no getting around that to the larger point that there needs to be a strategic pivot yes there definitely needs to be but probably it won't come at the expense of india's tactical response on the lc in the summer and from the pakistani side of course the strategic pivot will never involve not sending terrorists across the lc they will always continue to do that and as long as they do the conversation and the response will always be towards countering that it doesn't mean the bureaucrats and the politicians cannot work on uh, 
long lasting overarching strategic solutions we've spoken about them before uh, you and i've written about it before but uh, unfortunately the conversation will always be dominated by what's present what's immediate what presents the uh, sort of immediate whiff of danger will always be that uh, foreign terrorist infiltrating across the lc into indian territory so the conversation is going to be dominated by that whether or not we like it there will there might be strategic pivots like 370 but uh, they have to be sustained they have to be backed up with action on the ground and to the point that uh, the average kashmiri how it affects them uh, i again always go back to the point that it is one sliver of the kashmir valley which is uh, separatist and militant enough to pick up arms that sentiment might be a lot more prevalent but many thousands obviously don't act on it uh, so i don't think we should lose sight of the bigger target which is to bring normalcy by focusing overwhelmingly on the tiny majority which seeks to dominate the discourse through weapons you cannot give them that platform and i you know i know this is a conversation for maybe an entire episode by itself but do you think that fundamentally the whole argument on both sides is flawed because um india always talks about uh, there cannot be negotiations unless we talk about terrorism and pakistan is convinced that they both are separate conversations that is kashmir and and terrorism and that kashmir needs to be a conversation by itself uh, do you feel that this you know status quo uh kind of uh, approach from both sides is what is uh, creating status quo across every uh, front from from a military front to a political front to every track on which you know either military counterparts or bureaucratic counterparts or nsas uh, that's if our nsas are talking anymore uh, are even able to take this conversation forward you know they, is this sense of status quo kind of Uh, going to disrupt the whole potential gains we could have had through uh, the repeal of article 370 see we always uh, talk about the status quo and how it hasn't really changed or moved forward in so many decades but what we forget is almost every successive generation or not even a generation but in kashmir within the past 30 to 40 years we've had moments about every 10 years where there was an opportunity for a reset this may or may not be an opportunity the repeal of 370 but take your mind back to the 80s uh, there was potential for a reset uh, given india's operations in siachen and then operation brass tacks which followed uh, it led to india proving that you could test the sanctity of the line of control without fraying the western extremities of the border or leading to a full scale war that was a massive strategic reboot for the region in the 90s when terrorists were pouring in uh, in the early 90s that culminated the high watermark of that was kargil 99 again potential for a big reset was possible there if say india had violated the sanctity of the line of control or had india followed up uh, nuclear tests with some strategic action at the time of kargil there was that opportunity and again 10 years down the line uh, mumbai not exactly 10 years but 2611 gave us an opportunity to strategically reset ties so we will always have these opportunities it just It, it is a matter of whether parties on both sides are willing to act at the right time 
with the right intentions and with the right moves and honestly after 370 i don't think there has been the scope for any actor any state actor on either side to pick up the mantle and say that this is the direction that conversations need to now be heading in that opening you know may or may not be provided by another pulwama like event or it may just precipitate uh, from uh, either a massive drought a massive earthquake we just don't know it could be a hijacked airplane tomorrow any of these events could prove to be that spark which forces both sides to pivot and talk but as of now we just don't know what that might be but we can't shut the possibility out by having a hard stance of not engaging i think you always need to engage so on that note of uh, engagement i hope a lot of uh, our listeners will engage with this episode and uh, uh, thank you so much uday uh, and uh, we'll catch up uh, soon on other topics that are uh, right on top of our mind